Hi, Anison. Are you there? I am here, Camila. How are you? I'm good. All right. Let's begin. my podcast. I am Camilla, your high vibe advocate. Give me 15 minutes and I will give you a high vibe world. I actually have a special guest with us today, so it will not just be 15 minutes, but as I always say, please feel free to split this episode into 15 minutes if that's all you have. Today, I bring you Rabbi Yonason Goldson, Director of Ethical Imperatives, LLC, a company that offers keynote speeches and programming that help organizations improve employee loyalty and productivity by creating a culture of trust, engagement, and enthusiasm. He is an ethics and leadership speaker, a TEDx presenter, strategic storyteller, published author, husband, father, recovered circumnavigator, as well as a hitchhiking rabbi. Most importantly, he is someone who is here to explain and show us how a business culture or a culture in general of us versus them is not the best path to success. Yanison, it is such a pleasure having you with us today. I'm delighted to be here, Camila. <laughs> I'm really happy that you're here, and I'm sure everyone who's listening is now super curious about your personal journey to success, by the way, because I think lots of us, including myself, want to know how one gets to do TED Talks and how one becomes a keynote speaker. But I want to start a conversation actually on the main topic that you're here to discuss, and that is the us versus them culture that we seem to be living in and that many businesses still live in today. And what do you mean when you refer to the us versus them culture? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation where you couldn't trust anyone from the top all the way down to the front lines? I think, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think most people have at some point. Exactly, exactly. Uh, we've been in those situations. Some of us are in those situations now. Uh, so it's toxic uh, in a word. It, there's, I, in fact, I just uh, heard statistics today. Um, a staggering amount of um, loss in productivity that comes when people feel they are not treated with civility. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, um, people will actually start being unproductive on purpose because that's, that's what happens when, when you live in a society, you live in a, as part of a community or culture where you don't get a sense of fair play. You don't feel that you're recognized for your contributions. You don't feel that you're being respected as an individual and as a contributing partner then you feel, what am I doing here? Why should I invest? Why should I work when I'm not appreciated? But on the other side, there are studies that show that when we do feel that we're surrounded by a culture of trust and fairness, that it boosts our levels of oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, uh, all the things that contribute to mood elevation. And, and we become to feel, we, we feel empowered that we're taken, we're we're taken seriously, we were respected, we can make a contribution, and we begin to feel an obligation that we need to contribute what we're capable of contributing. And it ultimately becomes a win-win because the company succeeds, the culture succeeds, and everybody feels better being part of such a culture. That's great. 
I mean, it's it's actually very interesting to me because I'm sure you know I have I'm a workers' compensation attorney and I have a results only work environment company. So for me, I've always felt that one of the problems with society, and of course this doesn't apply to every single field because there are many fields where you need to be in person touching someone in order to do your job. Like if you're a doctor, if you're a hairstylist, if you're a masseuse, you know, you actually have to be there. But there's a lot of office culture where a lot of the work that we do, we can do remotely and we can do from anywhere. Yet we make people commute in horrendous traffic, polluting the world, getting to a place to do work that they could do from anywhere and then tying them to a desk from nine to five when really the only work they have is only an hour that day. And then other days it could be 12 hours, but yet, you know, they're stuck to a specific time frame. So I started something that's a results only work environment because I felt like I didn't own that person's time what I was was paying them for was really the work product and I could trust them to deliver that work product from anywhere so this this topic of trust is so important and not just for businesses I think in life in general even with with universities with students um so how how did you get interested in this topic well that was a, a long evolution um I, uh, I went to the University of California where I studied English and, uh, and English is, is you know, considered a very impractical course of study from a career point of view. Uh, but in terms of personal development, there's actually a study that showed that people who read literary, literary fiction um, demonstrate more moral sensitivity than people who read nonfiction. Because if I read a book about culture or let's say about ethics or about um, values, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm absorbing pieces of information, but I have no context in which to really make them meaningful. Whereas literary fiction tells stories that reflect deeper values. And so right. just reading something like Harry Potter, you're going to absorb the values that are put into story form and our minds are programmed to absorb stories. So we hear the stories, and, and the values become more internalized. And so uh, when I graduated, I didn't have career options, so I went traveling. Eventually, I ended up in Israel, where I reconnected with, uh, with my heritage, uh, studied uh, Jewish studies for, for nine years in Israel, became a rabbi, and then I wanted to share the insights that I'd learned. So I, I taught high school for 23 years. And when my, when my school closed three years ago, and I needed to decide what I want to do when I grow up, uh, I wanted to continue using that communication and, and, uh, and, and sharing those values. And so that led me into the world of platform speaking. And, uh, and ethics just came naturally because that's really the essence of what Jewish teachings are all about, how to create a culture of, of, uh, that, that's an elevated culture, higher purpose, higher values, where we respect one another and we're all working together in pursuit of common goals. And I mean, I know you discussed a little bit of that before about what the real problem with the us versus them mentality is. Obviously, we see the downfalls of the lack of productivity and there's no real teamwork because if you don't feel like you're part of the team, you're not going to you know, work like you're part of the team. But why do you think that some people and some businesses and some cultures still get stuck on that mentality if it's so obviously not good? Yeah, that's really a fascinating psychological question. Um, we can, we can be um, completely aware 
of, of truths in terms of what, what we need for happiness, what we need for success, and we can completely disregard them. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an all too human um, trait that we, we simply are, we have a short-term brain and we have a long-term brain. And they are locked in battle all the time. Uh, someone once said that, that students are the only people in the world who want to get the least for their money. Because <laughs> you remember what it was like to be in school. Yep. Any excuse to be late. Any excuse to stay up partying the night before. Any excuse to not do your homework. Uh, if, if class is canceled, woohoo. Uh, <laughs> True. You know, and, and, and it's, it's, it's a lot from a logical point of view, it's ridiculous because I'm paying money or my parents are paying money for me to be here to get an education, which I recognize is important to my future. But that, that, um, what, what does Seth Godin call it? The lizard brain, <laughs> you know, that part of us just wants comfort and immediate gratification and it's powerful. And if right. we, if we let down our guard, it will just take over. And the, the short-sighted goals, the quick profits, uh, it, it's just astonishing when you see in how many areas, business, personal lives, education, we will, we will, we will short-circuit our long-term goals for this immediate gratification that we know is not going to provide us with any kind of lasting value. And yet we do it anyway. And so we have to continue to remind ourselves, we have to study, we have to discipline ourselves, we have to surround ourselves. That's really what's important is surround ourselves with a culture that we create by, by connecting with people of quality, people of discipline. And then we hold each other responsible to, to set the bar higher. Well, that's actually my next question to you is what is your, your recipe or your prescription to change that mindset or how do you, when you're going and you're speaking to an audience or you're helping businesses overcome that, you know, that natural kind of, you know, pull towards being in that mindset, how do you get them out of that? Uh, so I, I, I just gave a keynote last week uh, to a group of behavioral consultants. Uh, so it's a, a, a new keynote that I've been working on for almost a year. And what I do is identify the three enemies of ethics, which are rationalization, right? convincing ourselves uh, of, uh, of what we want to be true, uh, fear, the, the concern over the consequences of doing what's right, and deflection. Instead of identifying our own mistakes, we focus on other people's mistakes and, and project onto them. And then I lay out a series of strategies to make ourselves more aware because it, it's like anything else. You know, how do you become a good basketball player? I wouldn't know. I'm a lousy basketball player, but <laughs> um, you know, yeah, a sport, dance, and any physical discipline, music, it's repetition. You know, Malcolm Gladwell's famous 10,000 hour rule. Uh, you develop muscle memory by right. doing the same thing again and again. So we can take that principle and we can apply it to our character traits. Um, the more civil I act, the more civil I become. If I consciously make a decision, I'm going to smile at people. I'm going to say good morning. I'm going to ask how they're doing. I'm going to offer to get somebody a cup of coffee. Uh, I'm going to be gracious when people uh, come and, and uh, ask for my help or need my time. Uh, I'm, I'm, 
I'm going to cultivate a natural response where this just becomes part of my character. And the more disciplined I am in developing those habits, they become habits and then they become traits and then they become natural. And I don't have to think about them anymore. And it's just the way I am. And then I can set the bar higher. That's really good. I mean, I sometimes wonder though, if it, if it isn't also a problem that not everybody has this, I don't know how to explain it, but like this, this natural care about another person or that perhaps they are in constant competition with one another, as opposed to understanding that the only true competition that we have is ourselves that we can never, you know, really compete with another person because we can only be as good as we're going to be. And we, you know, we are born with certain, you know, aptitudes and not others, just like you said, with basketball, it's the same for me. I mean, there's certain things I know that just aren't, they don't come naturally to me. So I, I would never, um, feel like I'm in a competition with someone else but I think in society a lot of times people are so they see each other I remember law school was a lot like that they see each other as you know as competition and sometimes it's hard to to care enough about another person and make them a part of your team when you don't see them as anything but just someone who's in your way to success yeah absolutely and and that's part of what we have to manage um, uh, both on an individual and on a societal level, because we, we all come with baggage. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we all had our, our traumatic events at some point in our lives. We all have our natural predispositions that we have to deal with. And then we have the superficial values of society that, you know, nice guys finish last and no good deed goes unpunished. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is part of our culture. You know, you have to hustle to win. You have to beat the next guy. But if you look at successful workplace cultures, I mean, they, if you, some, some of us are old enough to remember Enron, mm -hmm. yeah. long ago, uh, I, you know, they describe what the Enron culture was designed to be cutthroat. Right. It, they encouraged this sort of vicious in, internal competition. And, and they, you know, they thought this was going to drive people to work really hard. And what eventually it did is cause the disintegration of, of the entire company. Uh, whereas if you look at, at cultures like um, um, Trader Joe's, you walk into Trader Joe's and you've got all these people that are bagging groceries that love their jobs. Right. And they're friendly and they're engaging people. Uh, you, you, I, I haven't dealt with them, but they talk about Zappos, uh, the shoe company, uh, are supposed to have an incredible culture that everybody loves to work there. Uh, if, you, if you look at the models that work, you see patterns. Absolutely. And if you look at the models that, that may work in the short term, but are not necessarily projecting. This is what Simon Sinek has recently started describing as the infinite game. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not in it for the quarterly returns or the annual returns or the, the, the percentage of stock growth or the net profits. I'm in it because I have a higher purpose and the success of my business is incorporated into a higher purpose and a higher vision. And, and, I'm just, I want this to carry on and I want it to keep going. And what my, what my competition is doing, that, that doesn't really have anything to do with my success as long as I'm producing a good product and I, it's coming from a healthy culture and it's part of a larger plan. I completely, I, I really, I mean, you're, I completely agree with you. It's so, 
to me, it's so natural to feel that way and to see things that way. But it's so sad that it doesn't seem like most people do. And, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who he got his master's in Stanford. And he said that one of the things that he loved about Stanford that was really different from his undergraduate program somewhere else was that at Stanford, you know, the professors would leave the room during tests. And, you know, they just trusted that people wouldn't cheat or like, you know, there was just this, this camaraderie. Also, they had a lot of group work. There was just a, it was just a different culture. And the more trust they, they laid on the, the students, the more those students made sure that they earned that trust, that they kept that as, you know, as the way that it was, because once you break it, it would be an issue. Do you find that that's true also in your experience that, you know, the more trust you give people, the more they will earn it? Uh, well, as a, as a rule, yes, but we, you know, you can't be Pollyanna. Yeah, there are people in the world that just are not, they're not there yet, let's say, to be generous. Uh, right. maybe, maybe they're not programmed that way. Maybe their experience is that way. Uh, and, you know, of course, people, they have events in their backgrounds where they've had their trust uh, violated or taken advantage of. It. It's hard for them to trust. Um, there's a lot of cynicism in the world. And that's why it's incumbent upon those of us who recognize this is essential for a healthy culture, whether it's in work or in larger society, in our families, that we have to be more active, more proactive, more firm in establishing our values, in surrounding ourselves with people who share those values. And then it becomes something that's admired. It becomes something that's desirable. And, and people start to see, you know, I'd rather be hanging out with those people. I'd rather be working with those people. I'd rather be living near those people because they have a community, because they have camaraderie, because they trust each other, because they're there for each other. They have each other's backs. I want to be part of that, which means I have to earn my way in. And then I have to continue to earn the privilege of remaining with those people. And eventually, that's how you change a culture. And it doesn't happen fast and it doesn't happen easy, but it happens with determination. Well, you know, um, I was going to ask you, where does all this knowledge that you have come from? And, and by the way, one of the things that I love is that you call yourself a keynote speaker with 3000 years experience, because I'm sure you haven't been alive that long. I'm sure that means, you know, you draw a lot of your knowledge and wisdom from your rabbinic studies and from the wisdom of the ages. And this goes back to what you're saying now about how long it takes to change a culture. Have you kind of noticed from your studies and from your experience that humans have kind of faced similar problems their entire existence? Oh, absolutely. And, and that's, that's what's so frustrating. You know, Mark, Mark Twain uh, said, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but, but it rhymes. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I use a lot of quotes from King Solomon. I have a whole book. Uh, it's called Proverbial Beauty. It's about the, the wisdom of, of King Solomon's Proverbs applied to, to modern times and modern situations. Because the problem with a 3,000-year-old work like, work like the book of Proverbs is that the language doesn't immediately lend itself to our age. So it has to be updated to some degree, but the lessons are all there. And, and rather than trying to figure out, and what's really amazing, if you listen to a lot of the, the modern uh, pundits and the lifestyle and, and business success, they're, they're, they've got all of these studies and all this research they cite that simply supports 
what King Solomon taught us 3,000 years ago, what the sages taught us 2,000 years ago, what we've been learning again and again and again uh, for generations, there's more and more and more empirical evidence to support that wisdom. And, and it's, it's a tragedy not to draw on it, not to take advantage of it. And that's what I try to, to offer in, in my keynotes and my trainings, uh, to take that ancient wisdom and apply it to modern times and show how the answers are there for us. We just have to recognize them and, uh, and allow ourselves to benefit. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing how, how life is all about the basic human problems and human traits. You know, it's why I always say that everything in life is about relationships because you need to know how to interact with another person or at the very least understand the needs of another person to be successful in life because we can't do anything completely by ourselves. You know, we, we are in, we're interdependent yeah. and yeah. You know, do you agree with that? Do you feel like that's also part of some of the, the issues? A lot of people just try to do things alone. Oh, sure. I mean, it, you, you go back to the beginning of the creation uh, narrative, right? It's not good that man should be alone. Right. Uh, it's, you know, we, we are social creatures and we, we are incomplete. Why are we social? Because we're incomplete. I mean, no, none of us is perfect. None of us has everything figured out. None of us has skills at everything. And we need other people. That's why the concept of a, of a, a marriage relationship, of a neighborhood, of a, of a congregation, of a community, uh, this is what this is what allows human society to thrive uh, when we get it right. And what you're talking about in the beginning, there's so much acrimony. Uh, you know, my hope is that if we could try to fix things in the business world, because one thing we all agree on, we all want to make more money, right? So if we can recognize that having a healthy relationship culture, ethical culture, is the key to business success. My hope is that that will start to spill out into the wider community and eventually the political community, which is so oh, dysfunctional that'd, right now. That'd be you know, amazing. <laughs> we're not going to fix politics. I mean, people won't even talk to each other. They can't even be in the room with each other. Yeah. <laughs> but we have to be we have to be in the same room when we're working together. And, and so looking for ways that we can respect each other, that we can understand each other, communicate more clearly and combine our visions to work towards common goals. Uh, that's got to help the wider society. Yeah. I, and I think sometimes people forget, especially when it comes to the politics and the arguments within the political arena, you know, they don't, they forget that for the most part, and obviously we can't speak for everybody, but for the most part, everyone is trying to figure out the best way that would benefit the majority of the people. And they just have different theories of how to get there. And sometimes if you just go back to that common ground of we're all here trying to better society, because sometimes that's the thing is like some people don't believe that they think that they're trying to better themselves, <laughs> you know, and everyone in a way is kind of voting for the candidate that's going to be most beneficial to themselves. Um, and that kind of creates some of that <laughs> animosity. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, One of the most articulate voices today is Jonathan Haidt, uh, who talks about how, the, the, he's, he's speaking in political terms, but, but conservatism is, is, is saying, let's respect the traditions of the past. And liberalism is saying, let's look for how we can improve going into the future. And those are both very healthy outlooks. Yes. But they need each other because conservatism unchecked will become calcified and liberalism unchecked will, will spin out of control. 
Right. And there has to be a continuous tension and, 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 and symbiosis back and forth so that we, we could continue tacking back and forth, back and forth, but staying near some sort of a rational middle and, and applying that principle in any area, having dissenting views that are free to speak, that are willing to listen, and that grapple with the, with the different ways of looking at issues and eventually coming to some sort of a, a functioning resolution that everybody can get on board with. That's really the key to success in any endeavor. Yeah, it's true. And can you give us examples maybe of, or stories of how your knowledge of humans and relationships in the relationship that you've developed over the years, how they have helped you succeed in life, how all of this knowledge that you have, how that has helped you? Well, I, I just told this story uh, last week in my keynote. It's, 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 um, it's very close to me because I spent 20 years uh, teaching for the same high school here in St. Louis. And the principal that I taught with, um, he, he, was, uh, he wasn't a particularly diplomatic person, <laughs> um, uh, but he was an extraordinary educator and he had a tremendous sense of vision. And we were a tiny school, tiny private Jewish school. We had no academic admissions requirements whatsoever. Yet year after year, our students matched in their test scores. They matched the most prestigious private schools in the state. Wow. Uh, and they got admitted to, to the most prestigious schools and, and, and they went on to be tremendously successful because he created a culture where the teachers knew that we are part of something greater than ourselves. We were like a family. Uh, he, he had our backs whenever we, whatever we needed, whatever he could get for us, whatever he could do for us. When we had trouble with the school, trouble making payroll, he never took his salary until every other staff member had gotten paid first. Wow. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, and we, there was, you talk about an, an environment of trust. Uh, it was, it was an extraordinary school to work for. And, uh, and the, and the students that we graduated have shown success across every area of life um, and, and all different types of, of outcomes. Uh, it wasn't, a, we didn't produce cookie cutter students. We allowed students to develop and become themselves and, and be, their, be their own individual people. Uh, and, and it was because we were guided by these, these values. Uh, in fact, when we went through our, our last um, uh, accreditation review, uh, after a week of intensive study, the, the head of the accreditation community came to the principal and, and he said, Rabbi, we just have one question. Why is it every parent in the city breaking down your door to get their kids into your school? <laughs> uh, and sadly, uh, what, what really brought about the end of the school was community politics. Uh, is that people on one, one, one side wanted their things their way and people on the other side wanted things their way. And, and we were doing... We, we were the worst creature, the worst uh, being in the, in, the, in the known universe, the moderate. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, not, 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 uh, not moderate because it's arbitrarily in the middle, but moderate in the sense of being, uh, practicing moderation and, and being open to different styles and, and different views. And, uh, you know, in the world today, people want everything black and white. Mm -hmm. And that's just not reality. And that certainly is not a way to be ethical because ethics really does govern the vast gray area between what's right and wrong, which clearly right and wrong, between what's legal and illegal. Yeah, I mean, I 
definitely feel like we're living in the extremes. You know, it's so sad, but it's not even just here. It's everywhere. If you go around, it just seems like humans are just living in the extremes. And it's puzzling why when clearly, it, it, you know, it doesn't work and it's not true. It's not reality. You know, everything in life is in the gray area, I think, at least. Yeah. That's my yeah. perspective. Yeah. Um, I think uh, so much is. And, and, and the, you know, the truth is, I think things aren't as bad as they appear. Right. I, think, I think that the media thrives on making things look worse than they are. And that our responsibility is to tack more consistently towards the center and away from the extremes. And just, again, you've said it already, to surround ourselves with people who are, who are committed to a vision of a cohesive society, which is not a homogenous society, uh, a vibrant, variegated society, but where we're all committed to certain core values and, and a common vision. And I think if we, if we commit ourselves to that, then, then we can gradually start to marginalize the extremes and bring things back to some sort of a rational center. I'm, I'm in agreement, and I hope that we can do that. I think that that's really important for everyone to be happier as a society as a whole. Absolutely. Um, and how did you become a keynote speaker and a TED Talker? Because, you know, you, I know that people who listen here, I know I remember when I first spoke to you, that was my first question to you, because it's, it's hard to get people to even listen, you know, to trust an opinion of some, you know, of, of anybody really. So how, what were your first steps towards that? How do you, you know, move on to that world? Because it's a very competitive world. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I never imagined I was going to be a businessman. Uh, I spent my life as a scholar and as a, as a, as a classroom teacher, right. and, uh, but you know, Providence directs us in ways we don't always expect to go. And if I wanted to use my accumulated wisdom and, and, and the talents I developed, I was going to have to figure out how to market myself. And that's, you know, that's a long, longer conversation than we have um, time for now. But the, <laughs> the, the real key to anything is, is mentorship. Um, I, and one of the things about the speaking community, uh, the, the, the people in it are so gracious and so giving. It, it is just a wonderful community to be part of. And I called... I got, I got names from people. Sometimes I got email introductions. Sometimes I just sent people emails blind. So-and-so told me I should cut in contact with you. Uh, I've had people take me under their wing and, and mentor me and, and, and give their time and their wisdom to me. And, and it's just been so gratifying. Uh, but you have to have there's a certain amount of courage and a certain amount of willingness to ask right. and to accept help. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't always come naturally to me. Um, but to be get pointed in the right direction to clarify your message, because you have to differentiate yourself from the thousands of other speakers that are out there. What makes me different? What makes my message critical that people might want to hire me? And then you've got to do a lot of hard work. Crafting uh, a speech is not a simple matter. It's, it's like theater. It, it requires tremendous amount of writing and revision and practice, practice, practice. And, uh, and that's part of the, the TED phenomenon also. Um, it's, it's not easy to get a TED talk. Uh, it takes a lot of research. You have to go on the TED site, find where the local talks are, sift through them, find likely um, prospects, craft your, your message. Uh, and, um, but if you, if, you know, if you have something that's worthwhile to say, if you have a, a fresh uh, and, and an authentic way to say it, and you have a passion to deliver it, 
then that's what drives us in anything. And the passion pushes us forward and we do the work and we look for the guidance and we take the advice and, and, we, and we, we just keep our nose at the grindstone and, um, and we be patient. I was, I was told at one point, you're doing everything right. Most people fail because they give up too early. Oh, yes. That's, and that's a good lesson for anything we want to do in life. Yes, absolutely. You have to keep going. That's really what separates people that made it and those who didn't is, is that perseverance. Because, you know, it's very normal not to want to hear no, not to want to be criticized, you know, to feel defeated when, when you keep trying and you, you're not succeeding the way that you, ex, you know, expected or by a certain time. But what really sets people apart, I think, is that perseverance, you know, because if you keep going, I think eventually you'll find yourself, you'll find your message, you'll find your niche. And you'll find an audience for what you have to say, right? Yeah. Someone once said uh, the formula for success is, is uh, passion, perseverance, patience, and prayer. <laughs> Lots of peas. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so what, what do you think sets you apart? Well, um, you know, I, I, I'm a member of the, the Orthodox Jewish community. And, and most of my community is fairly insular. Uh, the speakers in my community are speaking mostly to other Jews or even other Orthodox Jews. And what I've done is I've taken the wisdom of my tradition and translated it into a, into a, a language that, that uh, applies to everyone. You know, outside the Jewish community, outside the religious community, I've tried to put it in, frame it in a, in a, in a, in a social context, in a business context. And there, there really uh, isn't anybody doing that. Right. So that's a way for me to differentiate myself. And uh, the tagline that you said, uh, a keynote speaker with 3,000 years experience. Uh, <laughs> I, I love that. I hope one day to, to pay the guy that came up with that for me. <laughs> 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 but it was, uh, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a tremendous uh, uh, brainwave that, that he had because it really encapsulates what I'm trying to do. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not the, the, the sage on the stage. I'm simply taking the wisdom that I've had passed down to me and, and trying to articulate it in a way that, that more people can benefit from it. Well, I think that's fantastic. And I also love, you know, and of course I'm biased, my, you know, I'm married into the Jewish culture. My husband's Jewish and I've grown up in Jewish areas my entire life. I went to a public high school that was mostly Jewish kids. <laughs> so you can imagine like literally my whole, my whole life. But I, when I, one of the things I love about Judaism is, is that it is a culture that has always helped each other a lot, you know, and there is a sense of camaraderie, you know, and, and we can all learn so much from that because the survival of this culture has been from that because it's been under attack for so many thousands of years. And it's such a great, it's such a great source of, of wisdom. And I don't know, example, I think. Yeah. And the and the warning intrinsic in that, implicit in that rather, is that um, if you look through Jewish history, it's cycle after cycle after cycle of tremendous oppression, resilience mm -hmm. in the face of, of oppression, becoming strong, becoming successful, and then becoming complacent and slipping into a certain amount of, of decadence or, or self-indulgence, uh, which leads to a decline that brings the oppression back. Right. Uh, you know, we have been we have been victims of our own success over and over and over again, and we're still trying to learn that lesson. So, how much uh, society have to be careful 
that. When we become affluent, when we become comfortable, that's really when we're in the greatest danger. Yes. Well, you know, it's funny because the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is that you are also a published author and you've written five books, including the one you mentioned before, The Proverbial Beauty, Secrets for Success and Happiness from the Wisdom of the Ages, and also Fix Your Broken Windows, a 12-step system for promoting ethical affluence. And I really like that term, ethical affluence. Can you explain what that means? Well, really, it's what we've been talking about all along. Uh, you, you, there, there are statistics that show that, that uh, companies that are rated highest for ethics grow on average uh, up to 5% faster than companies that don't. And the employees are more engaged, more, more passionate, more loyal, more productive. Uh, when you create a culture in which everyone knows they're being treated fair, fairly, they're being respected, um, and they can count on the people around them I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's cliches are usually true, right? There's no I in team. Um, you know, what is a team? Uh, you know, if you're, um, if you've seen the, the movie Miracle about the 1980 Olympic uh, hockey team, mm-hmm. uh, if you're if you're not old enough to actually live through it, the the movie does a great job of showing how this coach takes these college kids basically. Um, and at one point he says to them, you think you're going to win on talent alone? You don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they were up against these teams that, that man for man were much better than they were. But what he did is he forged them into a team and he got them working so um, naturally together because everybody trusted everybody else, because everyone was committed to everyone else and the larger and the larger team and the larger victory. Um, that's, that's what brings success. That's what brings affluence. And affluence is not just dollars. It's not just the bottom line. It's the feeling of being part of something greater than myself, because that's ultimately the source of real happiness. Uh, lots of really wealthy, successful people are clinically depressed, are suicidal, are absolutely miserable in their lives. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with making money. We all want to do that. But to recognize that money is just a tool like any other, it's not going to bring us happiness. And that success is, is the sense of, of accomplishment and purpose that we have by being committed to something greater than we are. Yeah, it's that fulfillment that you get from that. And I think that, you know, I notice it here because I live in a little village here in Northport. And one of the things that I notice is how businesses here they become an integral part of the community they literally dissect what the community needs and they they volunteer at things and they get you know they really want to get to know each person that lives here and in turn people that live here tend to trust them a hundred percent and they want them to be around they want them to be successful they want to support them because it's a symbiotic relationship you know and you want that around because you want that positive energy you want that positive person and presence in your life and in your community. And I think that for businesses, but also in a micro level for individuals, the more essential you become in someone else's life or in the life of of an entire community, the more, you know, they will support you back and make sure you're always around and make sure that you're their go-to person. And it's not like you should do it with that in mind, with that goal in mind, but rather, you know, when you come in and you truly just, really care you know about what you're in because 
for the businesses, it's also nice to be in a community that's thriving, you know, so if they can support that, that's a really good thing. Um, so I definitely agree with you on that. I think that it's such a great thing when people realize that. And it is great to have that ethical affluence. And affluence really is so much more than money. If there's if there's a lesson that you would want the listeners here to have from you being with us today or an overriding, I guess, theme or message, what would it be? I think the simplest message is that we don't have to choose between being good and being successful, uh, which is often what we feel like um, because of the, the, the perception we have of, of, uh, of the way society is headed. Um, we, we, you know, we have to be careful. We have to protect ourselves. What do they say? Uh, trust, but verify, <laughs> um, you know, don't give away trust too quickly because not everybody's worthy of trust, but seek out the people who are, uh, commit yourself to them. They'll commit yourself to you to, they'll commit themselves to you. And, uh, and the more we build that core of, of, uh, of a trusting community, community, the more successful we all will be and the better people will we become. We will all become the people that we were created to become. I really, really love that message. And I love that you said that we don't have to choose between being good and being successful. I think that's going to be the title of this podcast. <laughs> I really, really like it. Um, and if our listeners would like to know more about you or your work or you know, is there a way that they can contact you? Do you have a website? How do they get in touch with you? Are you on Instagram, yeah. Facebook, any of those? Uh, I, I am on Instagram, although I haven't been on there for a while. Uh, <laughs> a little bit on Facebook, LinkedIn, more than anything. Uh, I'm hooked up to Twitter, but I don't really know how to do how to use it. But uh, mostly my website, which is my name, uh, which is a little hard to spell, Jonas and Goldson. Uh, <laughs> it's also my business, with it, which is ethicalimperatives.com. And uh, I'm always eager to, uh, to carry on the conversation. If people want to keep in touch. Uh, they can find articles, videos, interviews, uh, as well as my TED Talk and my books. Yes, I really, really hope that you'll get a lot of track also from this because I really think that you have so much wisdom to share with us all, just like you did a little bit with us today. And I am so happy and honored and flattered that you not only listen to my podcast, but that you wanted to be a part of it. So I want to thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. And thank you so much for being here because we definitely share an interest in helping people fall in love with their lives and make the world a better place. And um, well, I really hope at least that our paths cross many times again in the future. Well, I hope so. It's been delightful. And thanks so much for having me on. Of course. And that is all we have for today. Thank you for being with me and for listening to me and for being a part of my journey. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it so that it reaches the hearts and ears that need it most. I am Camilla, your High Vibe Advocate. Looking forward to your outreach at highvibeadvocate.com. And as always, looking forward to our next meeting right here on my channel. See you next Wednesday. Oh, 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 oh,